what's up, neighborhood? How are you, Willie White and uh, and North Point? It's good to to be with you this morning virtually. So this morning, uh, before I I went out for my walk, and on my walk, I felt like God told me to look up a passage, and the passage is from the Book of Acts. Um, it's not the passage I was going to preach about today, but it it gave me some insight and. And that story is the story of Stephen. And Stephen was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And in, in, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen uh, has to stand up before the whole Sanhedrin, the, the highest ruling party in Jerusalem. And he begins to walk them through the story of the people of God, the people of Israel. And as he walks them through, he talks about how Joseph was sold into slavery because his brothers were, were jealous of him. He talks about how Moses... When God had called him, Moses had been chosen from the time he was born, and God had called him to uh, 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 be um, to, to deliver the people. How one day he came to a slave and, uh, and, and spoke to him, and the slave said, "Who do you think you are? Are you going to beat me up and kill me like the person you did yesterday?" you know and, and and, and then Stephen just kind of walks through the history of the people of God, and he shows how again and again and again the people of God refused to uh, obey the Holy Spirit of God, refused to cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God, and how again and again and again they resisted the Holy Spirit. And Stephen speaks to the Sanhedrin and says, and so you too have resisted the Holy Spirit of God. And you put to death Jesus. And the reality is, is we live in a world where all kinds of things, all kinds of forces try to dominate us. And other people will come and they will try to dominate us. Because we have a whole bunch of people in this world that are all trying to make the world revolve around themselves. And if we're honest, that, that lives and exists in us as well. And, and so it is not unusual then that when a force comes into our life that is demanding our submission, that we have built up a natural tendency to resist that force, right? Because what we have learned is if you don't resist, you will be dominated. Or if you do allow yourself to be dominated, then, then you have to receive this lie into yourself that you are worthless. And so um, where is a natural tendency in mankind to resist authority, even when that authority is the Holy Spirit. And so we, we talked last week about uh, Sabbath economics. We talked about manna. And we talked about Jubilee. And we talked about feeding the 5,000. We talked about how Jesus, uh, Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish from a boy. They put their, what little they had in Jesus' hands and he was able to multiply it. And we talked about how we as a people need to learn to do the work of God, which is to make this exchange where we submit to God and give things over and put it into his hands. In the year of Jubilee, the economics of grace, those economics were economics where 
we were constantly needing to give back to God what he'd given to us. In fact, the tithe was God just saying, I want you to give me 10% so that you remember where you got it from. So you remember where you got it from. I don't need you to give me the whole thing, but just a part of it, because it's important that you remember who you got it from. And so this is, this is what happens with us, okay? We, we have a tendency to resist the Holy Spirit. And, and it is that tendency that God is always contending with. And so we've been, we've been uh, marching through the book of John. And the first group of people that Jesus had to contend with were the Pharisees. And they, they found their power and their control in, in power. And so Jesus had to confront them at their place of idolatry. And so he, he, um, he had to talk to them about the fact that he was the highest authority. And so, so what we saw was Jesus confronted the Pharisees' desire for power, right? And then later on, what we saw was that, that Jesus um, then had the multitudes come to him because they had bread, because he had fed them bread. And, uh, and what, what we talked about with that is that, that people, when they are desperate, people when they need a healing, people when they are hungry, they will look for whatever king they can find that will give them what they want. And Jonathan Morgan talked to us a few weeks ago about um, the fact that did they really want to make Jesus king of their life or did they want to make Jesus their king, right? And so there's a difference. The difference is that when, when Jesus is king of your life, that means you are willing to submit to him. You're willing to do what he asks you to do. Um, but when, uh, when you're making him your king, really what you're doing is you're trying to take Jesus and put him in your back pocket. And in the, years to come, in, in, in the next few years, we're going to see a massive amount of money, billions of dollars spent so that we can make a certain leader our leader. And, and people will do that because they think that that leader is going to do for them what they want. It's not because we really want to submit to Donald Trump or we want to submit to Joe Biden. It's because we want those leaders to submit to us and do for us what we want them to do. And so that's the story so far. So the people come to Jesus and they want to make him king. And it, it's so crazy that like, Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with it because he knows what is in a crowd. He knows how fickle a crowd is, you know? Um, and, in, and in fact, so, so here's the thing, guys. When there's a crowd, crowds have power. And uh, in community you organize and one of the things that they teach us is that what you're doing is you're trying to get a large group of people a crowd together 
that you represent so that when you meet with your politician, you're not meeting as Scott Parker or Zach Osborne or Jonathan Morgan or Kevin Taylor. You're meeting as this full crowd. And, and so crowds are powerful. And anytime you have a crowd, there is power. And even Jesus' uh, brothers and sisters were always telling him, hey, if you want to develop a following, if you want to have power, if you want to be in charge, go to Jerusalem and develop that following, please. But, but uh, Jesus knows better because Jesus is not interested in the power of a crowd. Jesus is interested in the power of God. And so Jesus is about to read this passage, and it is seriously one of the kind of most disturbing passages in all the New Testament. Jesus is about to thin out the crowd. Jesus is about to basically say everything that you're not supposed to say to keep a crowd following you. And Jesus is about to do that because he, he is not there um, with power that he needs from men. He was there with power that he gets from God. And, and so what he's going to say is, is actually so not just disturbing, but it will actually make no sense to a single person that he's speaking it to. Because the things he's going to talk about in the passage that we're going to read today are things that have not happened yet. They are things that will not make sense until he has died, been buried, resurrected, and poured out the Holy Spirit. But before we look into this passage, I'm going to have Jonathan or Quincy play this song. Now, this is a song that we sang when I was little uh, in church. And I just, I just want you to, Listen to it for a moment. Quincy, can you play that? What? 
So that's a song we used to sing when we were little, and I love that song. And it's a guy named Ray Epp, and there were all these songs. There's one, uh, here we are all together as we sing our song joyfully. And when I was little, I used to love those songs. We would, we would sing them, and we were excited. And I think it was like when I was in college or something, I was at our Lutheran church, and we started um singing here we are all together or now um uh you know singing the song that we were just listening to and also we got to the poor part where we were singing eat his body drink his blood and we'll all join in and sing and i i just stopped and i just thought man if you were not a christian and you didn't know what this was about that would sound really, really freaky, right? If you walked into any sort of meeting and all of a sudden they started singing a song about eating somebody's body and drinking their blood, it would freak you out. And it doesn't help that the tune sounds eerily similar to the Oompa Loompa song, right? And so, so I was just listening to it and it really was kind of, uh, disturbing to me. And, and what we see in John 6 is that in this passage in John 6, verse 39, we're going to have kind of a similar kind of uh, passage. And this is what Jesus is doing. And he is, he is literally getting rid of this crowd. So in verse 39, it says, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we knew? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And that's the word of God. Eat unless you eat my body, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So what the heck is going on here? All right. What does it mean that Jesus is saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Um, this passage has disturbed me for a long time, and today I'm going to um, kind of crack open some ideas I have around this. Um, I think there's a lot for us to get from this, um, and so I'm just going to I'm going to jump into it. First off, I think the fact that Jesus is uh, basically describing himself as a meal is very significant. Um, if, there, if, if you think about what a meal is to you, all right, there is almost nothing, uh, there's almost nothing more dominating to do to something than to eat it. All right. And so what does it mean? What does it mean that God puts him in the situation where mankind can eat God? All right. What does it mean to eat God? Because that's what is going on here. The first thing I want to I, I look at is the Passover sacrifice. All right. So the, the first principle is Jesus as the dominated sacrifice. Jesus as the sacrifice. So what we know is in, in the Old Testament, when uh, Jesus was, um, or when, when the, the people of God were going to be set free on the Passover, they sacrifice the Passover lamb and after they sacrificed it, they ate it together. And that lamb was uh, a lamb sacrificed in place of the firstborn. And anyone who did not have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost 
would be killed, the firstborn in their household would be killed that night. This is very interesting because the whole reason the people of God are in Israel, are in Egypt, is because way back in a war about who would be firstborn, Joseph's, Joseph's brothers, the Joseph that Stephen was talking about when he talked to the Pharisees, that Joseph was put into uh, slavery. His life was sacrificed into slavery. He was oppressed. And because of that, he um, was able to save his brothers and his sisters and bring them um, out of slavery. And so when Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he is pointing towards communion, and communion takes place on Passover. And he is, he's in some ways pointing back to this idea that Jesus is like a Joseph, and Jesus is like this Passover lamb. And then also this takes us back to something that's called the sin offering. And the sin offering in the Bible was an offering that was um, made between the priests. It was, was made when you, when you unintentionally sinned against God. And it was kind of a reconciliation offering. And the way it worked was you brought it, and one of you took the offering. Uh, you ate a part of the offering. The priest ate a part of the offering, and God took part of the offering. It was a way of reconciling man to God. And so, um, and so this is going on here. There, there's something about Jesus pointing to the fact that if you want to have eternal life, you're going to have to partake in this ceremony of communion that is about my sacrifice. So this, this is kind of amazing that God is not the priest in this story. God is not the deliverer in this story. God is, Jesus is comparing himself to the meal in this story and to the, to the sacrifice. And because he's willing to make that sacrifice, we get to point two. So point one is that Jesus as the dominated sacrifice, Jesus as the one that is consumed. Point number two, it proves his worthiness. You see, when, when God created this whole idea of economics, uh, the year of Jubilee, where he apportioned certain land to every single person. And then every seven years, he had the land take a rest. And then every seven of seven years, he set everybody free and pushed the reset button. What you see there was God never wanted anybody to have too much, and he never wanted anybody to have too little. And when God set up his government, he had the same he had the same notion. God set up a government where you had a prophet, you had priests, and you had a king, and you had the law, the word. 
And there was a, a shared leadership. There was a check and balance because God did not want anybody to have too much power. And so the prophet spoke from God to the king, God's word. The king was to write out a scroll that he was supposed to obey the actual word of God the whole time. And so the king was submitted to the word and to the prophet. And then the priests were the ones that taught people the word of God. So just kind of like in America, we, we need to know our laws or they don't do any good for us. It was the same way with the priests. The priests taught the laws. And God had one command about priests and kings. And that command was that no priest can be king and no king can be priest. And in fact, Saul lost his um, kingdom because he behaved as a priest when he wasn't supposed to. And so there was always this perfect check and balance between priest and king. Because God knew if any one person had too much power, things would go awry. He knew the selfish ambition that was in a man. And yet what we so often hear and see about Jesus is Jesus is actually described as all four of these forms of government. Jesus is described as the priest. Jesus is described as the king. Jesus, when you read that he was the son of man, he is the prophet. And of course, in John, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. Jesus is also the word. And Jesus as sacrifice, Jesus as the meal, that is the ultimate sacrifice. And when Jesus is obedient unto death, even death on the cross, what Jesus is proving is that he has no selfish ambition in him at all. There is no need for a check and balance with Jesus because he is devoid, absolutely devoid of any selfish ambition. He is willing to be even the meal that makes the liberation for people happen. He is willing to be the dominated instead of the dominant in pure obedience to God. And because of that, he is completely worthy, right? What the Bible says is after he did that, God took him and sat him at his right hand. So that laying down of his life, that laying down of all his selfish ambition was actually the key to his authority. Guys, that is true in our life as well. God is looking for living sacrifices. God is looking for a people that are devoid of selfish ambition and a people that will be living sacrifices, a people that will be devoid of selfish ambition, whose only desire is to tremble at the word of God and obey what he says, like Jesus. That is a people God can truly entrust his power to. And never more in our city's history is there a need for people with that God-given power. There is a place of authority that begins with self-sacrifice. 
And so we see Jesus as the dominated sacrifice. We see that his sacrifice is what makes him worthy to sit at the right hand of God. And point number three, we need to eat God. We need to feed on God because it suppresses our sinful appetites. The reality is, is that we have this thing in our flesh. We are a hungry people. We are hungry to worship something. We're hungry to find a purpose or something that we can sacrifice our lives to. And a lot of us, it's pleasure. It could be food. It could be sex. It could be power. It could be your job. It could be your family. It could be your kids. Right? And that, that insatiable hunger to have something to worship will drive us in ways that get really, really unhealthy and destroy people's lives. But Jesus is coming and saying, eat, eat my flesh, drink my blood, be satisfied with me. Because when we're satisfied with God, it, it curbs our appetites. That was his word to the woman at the well, right? A woman who was on her fifth husband, right? She, she is finding, her, she has an appetite for men. And Jesus says, if you would drink this living water, you wouldn't be thirsty and you wouldn't be so thirsty anymore. Um, if you so, uh, look at Adam and Eve, when, the, when they see the fruit, right? They have, it says they saw that it was good to eat. There was an appetite for that which was forbidden. And, and sometimes it's just super base, guys. Sometimes the enemy just hits us in the basest place, the place where you just want a relief right now, right? And that's why it's so important that you're filled up with God, that you are, are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, and that you are, you're eating from the word of God, that you're in God's presence and experiencing that, the living water of the Holy Spirit. Because when you're filled up, you're not hungry for things that are bad for you. If you're filled up with what is good, you're not going to be hungry for what is bad. And your hunger for what is bad will drive you to do bad things. The fourth principle, so the first principle was it's the power and the scandal of the Scott sacrifice. It proves his worthiness. It's a suppression of our appetite. And the fourth is blood and flesh is brought inside of us. You see, blood was the flesh part is the hunger part. But the blood part, this is the most offensive part of what Jesus said. Because God commanded his people, you cannot drink blood. Other nations drank blood. But God commanded his people, you cannot drink blood. And so when Jesus says, you got to drink my blood, he is literally in the face of everything these people have ever been commanded. And you see, in the blood, the blood in the Old Testament, the way it was used was an animal was sacrificed, and then blood was. Uh, spattered on everything that went into the holy place. So the priests had blood put on them. The articles, uh, the, the altar and the lampstand and the, 
everything that was in the tabernacle, it was like God said, you have to put blood on it because that blood made it holy. That blood made it okay. But check it out. It was always blood put on the outside. It was always blood put on the outside. But Jesus says, I want you now to have my blood on the inside. Because the the work of God is an inside-out work. That's the main difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant, the Old Covenant was God exists over here in this tabernacle, and I am outside of it, and I need blood to enter into God's presence. The New Covenant says, I'm bringing my blood to the inside of you, and I'm cleansing you from the inside out. So that now God can dwell inside of you. And that is why we work out our salvation. Because it's already started on the inside. And now we work it out. In Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, it says this. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, And through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's the blood on the outside, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Your conscience is on the inside of you. Your ability to discern right and wrong, God comes into that part of you and purifies that. And so when Jesus says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, what he is saying is you've got to let God into the inside. of you. You've got to let God come and help you discern right from wrong on the inside of you. And once you've been born again, we've experienced it over and over again. Suddenly things that used to be okay for you to do, they're not okay for you to do anymore. Suddenly you start to feel conviction about certain things. And And you you actually sometimes will weep over your sin or you'll feel like this deep inner uh, pain when you do what is not right in God's sight. That's the blood of Jesus on the inside of you, cleansing your conscience. Before that, your your conscience was about what I want to do. After that, your conscience is what God wants you to do. The fifth thing is the destruction of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. Jesus said, what I want to give you is real meat, real drink, and real righteousness. You see, the Pharisees had created a system of rules, and we all can do that. We all can make up in our mind, I'm better than everybody else because I've got money and savings. 
and those people don't. I don't drink. Uh, or if you drink, I don't judge people that drink. I'm, I'm not a judgmental person. Killers might even be like, hey, I don't shoot children. I draw the line at children. Those guys are shooting children. What kind of monsters are those, right? We, we have a, the human nature as a tendency to always uh, wanna be self-righteous, always try to justify ourselves by comparing with other people. But here comes Jesus and his obedience is so thorough that he literally is saying, my sacrifice is not, I'm not the one who serves you the meal, I am the meal. And we just have to say, all right, you win. I, I don't have that in me. I love you guys, I love you NRP, but I don't want you to eat me, all right? I don't, I don't wanna become annihilated by you, for you. Jesus was willing to do that, all right? Um, Jesus is, is the very last sacrifice. So Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. So, so here's the thing, is like sometimes we can, uh, we can get it in our mind that we've suffered more than somebody else. And because we suffered more than somebody else, we're better than them. I know you probably never have done that, but occasionally I've been known to think that way, right? And I, I was talking to Sung Chan Ra a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about white supremacy has created something, what he calls the suffering Olympics between different races. And a lot of times when, when uh, oppressed minority groups get together, they start uh, comparing their suffering. And it becomes this competition, which, which one of us has suffered more? But guys, anybody that suffered in this world, the reality is, is that you're not perfect. And that's why so often when people first enter into really extreme suffering, whether it's chronic illness or they're put in prison or being tortured, what often will happen with them is the first thing that will come to their mind is what did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this, right? There's, a, there's a, this understanding and, and Richard Wormbrand who was in uh, uh, solitary confinement for seven years talked about how everybody in that prison felt like they deserved to be there. There was this, this moment that they had with God where they were asking this question, what did I do to deserve to be here? And they began to evaluate their life and they began to realize, you know, I did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. And there's something about suffering that makes you acutely aware because you're always in pain, all the things that you did wrong, because you will do anything, repent of anything to get out of that pain. That's not Jesus though, guys. Jesus could look back on his life and there was nothing he had ever done wrong. There was no deserving of this suffering 
In fact, the only reason he was suffering was because we, our sin was the reason that made him suffer. I mean, how, how often have you been in suffering and it was partially because of what somebody did? And how angry do you get at them? I mean, imagine like you get hit by a car because somebody was texting and for the rest of your life, you have back pain 24 hours a day. That's, that's happened to a friend of mine. How often do you get angry at that person? Or if you lost a child to murder, all the families in Chicago who have to deal with the fact that they know somebody took the life of my kid, that suffering, that anger. And yet Jesus, he's on the cross specifically because of our sins. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. Jesus wins the suffering Olympics because he doesn't deserve to suffer. And that's what makes him, and, and, and his sacrifice is the perfect sacrifice. Not even Abraham's sacrifice. Do you remember? Abraham and Isaac go to the top of the mountain. Abraham is sacrificing his son. His son is willing to be sacrificed. And God says, it's not good enough. You could sacrifice your life. You could sacrifice your family. You could sacrifice all your dreams. And it would not be a worthy enough sacrifice for you to enter into the presence of God. And so when Jesus said, unless you can understand that only my sacrifice, only my flesh, only my blood is able to save, unless you can understand that all your plans for salvation, there is no negotiation you can make with God that's going to make you right with him. You cannot have eternal life, but if you can, if you can have that, then you can have eternal life. And so what do we do with this now? What do we do with this reality of God being our, our meal? Of God being the perfect sacrifice? of God giving himself so absolutely fully to me, to you. We see it later, and we saw it earlier. Jesus says, your work now is to believe. Your work now is to believe. God was willing to make this sacrifice for you. There is nobody, nobody in your life that has sacrificed as much for you. Nobody. And so God comes to us and he says, will you just believe? Grace is about this. I was given a gift that I don't deserve. And so now, I can trust the one who gave it to me. And so what I think we need to think through, guys, is where is God 
asking us to make the exchange, right? God is going to ask us to make an exchange with our time, with our energy, with our money, where we take things out of our hands and we put it in the one that we can absolutely depend on with our time. Guys, your prayer life matters. There's an exchange that happens. I often tell people, do you pray till it hurts? Do you pray until you could be getting something else done right now instead of spending time with God? There's the exchange where I take it from my hands and I put it in God's hands. I take time that I have and I put it in God's hands and I trust that what I'm not getting done right now, God can get done better. Energy. We have energy for things, don't we? We get energy for our hobbies. We get energy for television shows. We get energy for things that we love to do. And when you have energy, when you're excited about something, we say, this thing brings me life. That's why I love to do it, right? And, and if we're not careful, the things that give us energy become, become gods in our life. They, they become God's main competition because I get a lot of energy from doing this. And so the exchange in energy is, will you exchange what gives you energy for God? Now, I'm not saying you can't do fun things. I'm just saying, what is predominant? What is predominant for you? Does, does your relationship with God give you energy? If not, there's a faith exchange that needs to happen. Money. Jubilee is all about those that have more than enough redistributing their wealth to those that don't have enough. But if I do that, God, will there be enough left over for me? Right? That's an exchange. Are you going to exchange money from your hands to money for God's hand, into God's hands. And then the fourth thing where we have to make exchange is our self-worth. A lot of the things we do, we do so we feel valuable. And sometimes we just have to be obedient to God. And when you make that exchange, when you give up something that gives you worth for God, you're allowing God now to be your source. We've been preaching through God as our source. His source as our father. Uh, last week we, we preached his source as our provider, our provision. And this week we, we look at God as literally the sacrificial meal. So church, may we be a church where we make that exchange, where we put our trust in the one who is worthy of our faith. Amen.